Have you ever felt like running away? (laughs) Could be a problem, a person, some situation that we face. It makes us just want to run away. You know, maybe things have gotten so tough and we think, why do I just keep on dealing with it? I'm going to throw in the towel and I'm going to walk away. Sometimes what happens is we lose our way. Maybe we get tempted by some sin and we are, rather than turn around in repentance and go back to God from our sin, we just say, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to get closer and closer to this thing that is drawing me away from God. And so we turn our back on him and we run away. If you were here last week when we began looking at the, the book of Jonah, you'll recall that we saw that everybody involved in the story was running away. There were the Ninevites, the pagan people that Jonah was being called to go to, to preach against their wickedness and to call them to repentance, to come back to God. We talked about the background of the book. It wasn't just the pagan Ninevites, but it was God's people, the Jews. As the nation of Israel had split into two and the northern and the southern kingdoms were both running away from God, and God was sending prophets, Hosea and Amos, to speak to them. And then there was Jonah, the prophet that was being sent to the Ninevites, and even Jonah was running away. Jonah was one who turned his back on what God called him to do, and he was running. And what we saw as we looked at all of these people who were running away from God God, in his great mercy and grace, rather than saying, I'm done with all of you, rather than saying, you're going to get what you deserve, I'm going to punish you for your disobedience, what we saw is God's great grace, God's great mercy, as he pursued the people, as he he said to them, I have a gift for you, if you will repent and return to me, you will find forgiveness. And as we turn in our Bible again to Jonah chapter 1 today, and we go a little deeper into the story, What we're going to see is that no matter how deep we get into trouble, no matter how far we try to run from God, God in his mercy and his great grace and love are there pursuing us and he will come after us. As we look at Jonah chapter 1 and verses 1 through 2, it tells us the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Here what we see is the book starts as it highlights the sin of the Ninevites. And as we talked about last time, God's solution for that was to send his prophet Jonah to call these pagan people to turn around and to come to him. The name Jonah is a name that means dove, and his father's name is Amity, which means truthfulness or faithfulness. And these are fitting names for Jonah because he was called to be the messenger of truth. He was called to be the one who would go and share God's news with these people. But as verse 3 tells us, Jonah, the son of faithfulness and truth, proves to be unfaithful because the dove decides to take flight and he heads the opposite direction. It says, so he went down to Nineveh and he found a ship which was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, this map that we saw last time showed the, <clears throat> the difference in direction. Jonah went down to Joppa, this port city, when he was called to go to Nineveh, which was 500 miles to the northeast. And you'll recall that Tarshish was 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. He went as far as he possibly could, he thought, from the presence of God, because Tarshish, you'll remember, was on the western edge of the civilized world. There was no farther place 
that Jonah could go. And it just shows how far he was willing to run from God. And as you think about Jonah and Nineveh, as we talked about last time, Nineveh was a wicked place. At this time, it was the royal residence. It later became the the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians later were enfolded into the Babylonian Empire. These were the, the pagan nations that God was using to discipline his people, the Jews, as they were in disobedience to him. And the Assyrians, you remember, were a a, a terrible people. They had made torture and killing a sport. I told you how they liked to skin their captives alive, how they would bury them in the sand up to their necks, and they would pull their tongues out and they would stake them down in the desert sun so that they would swell and the people would slowly suffocate. We saw in the book of Nahum another prophet of that time how he told us that the calling card of the Assyrians was to pile up skulls and bodies outside of the cities that they had defeated. Recently, I was in Rwanda, and as I was there, many of you will recall about 20 years ago, there was a terrible genocide there where two of the tribes were, were massacring and killing each other. And as we went to the genocide museum, there was a grave there that had over 250,000 people buried in it. And we went out to another uh, Catholic church where about 5,000 people had packed into it seeking refuge. And the people were massacred in that that church and it had been made into a a memorial and there were all the bloody clothes were left in there piled up. And outside there was a crypt that you went down into and it had all the bones and the skulls of the people piled upon themselves. And as you walked through there, And you saw just what man is capable of doing to others in the wickedness and depravity. It's a picture of what the Ninevites would do. You would pass a city that had been defeated and there would be these piles of skulls and bones like I saw just piled up outside the city. And these were the people that Jonah was being called to. And so instead of going to Nineveh, he flees. Now, we would think that Jonah was fleeing because he was afraid of what they would do to him. But you remember, as we saw last time, the real reason Jonah ran was because he knew that if he went to the Ninevites, there was a chance that they would actually repent, that they would turn from their wickedness and they would turn to God. And if they did, God in his great mercy and grace, rather than wiping out the enemies of the Jews, these Ninevites who were crossing the desert, who were coming in and were decimating Israel, would then be forgiven. And Jonah didn't want that. Jonah knew that God would show his mercy and grace, so he he fled from Tarshish. As we look at our lives today, I wonder if we've ever looked like Jonah. How many of us have chosen to disobey God at some point in our life because we knew we had a personal preference or we had a love for something that was greater than God's love for us or the thing he was calling us to and we ran from God because we were afraid that if we followed through and did what God wanted, there would be an outcome that we didn't actually like. As we talk about Jonah today, I want us to think about our own lives and to think about our own little Ninevehs those places or people that we are running from when we know that God wants us to go there? Is there a person that God wants you to talk to that you're running from? Now, our Ninevehs don't have to be some foreign or faraway place. For many of us, it's really just across the street. It could be that neighbor that is right across the street. It could be the person across the hall from us at school or where we work. 
And we know that God wants us to go and talk to them. We've looked at them. We've seen the disobedience in their life. We know the things that are going on. And we know God wants us to go and speak with them. But we say, God, I would rather run to my Tarshish, my place that is far away from this person, because I don't want to have that conversation. And when we run from what God wants us to do, whether it's dealing with a situation in another person's life or sometimes dealing with the sin in our own life, what we are doing is we are running from God in disobedience. And whether it's a single step or it's a journey of several thousand miles, when we're going away from the direction that God wants us to go, we're going in the wrong direction. And as we talked about last time, when we are running from God, when we are running to our sin or away from what God wants us to do, he calls us to repent. You'll recall that the word repentance literally means to stop. The word repentance means we understand we're going in the wrong direction and we stop and then we turn around and we go in the other direction. We saw that repentance is defined as changing your mind along with a change of will and action. And so when we're running from God, if you picture yourself at the cross of Christ in fellowship with God, when we sin, we turn our back on him and we run away from him. And what God says is we need to stop and we need to turn around and we need to go back to him. And this is what Jonah was being called to do, to go to the, the Ninevites and to tell them that they were going in the wrong direction. But instead of doing that, Jonah didn't go to where God called him. It says he found a ship which was going to Tarshish. Now, just because something looks like it's an open door, it doesn't mean that you should go through it. Especially if you know God has given you clear directions to go in a certain direction. I will talk to people often who will tell me, well, you know, Roger, um, if what I'm doing is wrong, then how come it feels right? Or, Roger, if, if everything is falling into place, then, then why doesn't God want me to go that direction? He's giving me all these open doors. And you know, the Bible says when you have an open door, walk through it. That's in the book of Second Hesitations, by the way. <laughs> and so many of us think that there's an open door, and so we should just walk through it. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been driving down a road and you're going in the wrong direction? You're, you're either on the wrong road or going the wrong way. And as you're going down the road, uh, are all the lights red? Or do they sometimes turn green and let you keep going farther and farther in the wrong direction? And when you're on the wrong road or going the wrong way, what you have to do is you have to decide there's a point where I need to turn around and go back the right way. That's repentance. And it's the same thing with our sin. It's the same thing that's happening with Jonah. In the times where we're running from God, what we need to understand is the devil is always ready to provide the transportation or to turn the light green for us. Satan is more than happy to have a ship waiting for you. But friends, can I warn you of something? When you board that boat and you end up at the destination that it ends up, you'll find that it's not all that was advertised in the slick brochure for sin, is it? What you find when you board those boats, when you're running from God, when you're chasing after your sin rather than the thing that God wants you to do, what, what you'll find about sin is that it will take you farther than you plan to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. And as we look at the story today of Jonah, what we will find is that it cost Jonah and all the others on that boat an enormous amount.
As Jonah chooses to run from God, I, I want you to understand that as, as he's going away from God, it's costing him and it's costing others an enormous amount. And he goes deeper and deeper in his sin. As you read the passage, I want you to notice the downward spiral of sin. It tells us that Jonah went down to Joppa. And then it says he went down to the port and he got on a boat. And then he gets in the boat and he goes down into the hull of the boat. He's going down, down, down. And that's the way it is with our sin as well, isn't it? We start out just one little step away from God, but then it takes us farther and farther from him, and it's down and down. We do something wrong, and then we tell a lie to cover it up, and we go deeper into the sin. We, we get addicted to something like drugs or alcohol, and it's just one little drink, and then it's more and it's more. And we keep going down and down, deeper and deeper into the depravity, deeper into that hole. And as we look at Jonah, he's going deeper into his sin and he's going farther from God because he feels this conviction. And he thinks, if I can just run far enough from God, then I'll be able to get away from him. Have you ever tried to do that? If I can just numb myself enough, if I can just get away from all of God's people who will be convicting me because they don't even have to say a word. You know, the scripture tells us that for wives, it says by your chaste and respectful behavior, you can win your non-believing husband over without even a word because the conviction of your life can show him that. And so many times people, when they're running from God, they will run away from the church. They will run away from people, everything that represents anything about God. But while Jonah can run, we see that he can't get away. If you've ever read Psalm 139, it tells us this. In Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, the psalmist tells us, Where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me. And if thy right hand, and there thy right hand will lay hold of me. If you're trying to run from God, there is nowhere that he is not. And no matter how far we try to run from him, friends, he will pursue us. He will find us. Because you can go nowhere that God is not. He is everywhere. And when God pursues us, his desire is to drive us back to himself. It's because of his great love for us that he does these things. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us in chapter 12, verse 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son that he receives. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we receive him to be our savior, the scripture tells us God receives us as a son or daughter. And once we are made a part of the family of God, God's great love for us as believers is too great to ever let us go. He will never let you go. Do you realize that? The book of Romans tells us about God and his great love for us. As that chapter ends in verses 38 through 39, it says, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing, that includes you and me, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When it comes to God's great love for us, that includes his discipline for us. 
If we as a believer are running from God, the good news is this. He will chase you down. Do you realize that? And I say that's good news because it is. The worst thing that could happen to us is for God to say, you know, you're not mine. I'm not worried about you. And let us run in our disobedience. Jonah was one who was running from God and God pursued him. It tells us in verse 4, as Jonah is running from God, he comes after him. It says, And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. As you read your Bible, whenever you see Lord in all capital letters, you'll remember that that means that's God's covenant name, Yahweh. And I want you to note that as you read through the book of Jonah, because you'll see that name show up that is showing God in his great faithfulness his loyal love, his hesed for us, even when we are unfaithful and run from him. And what we see here is the writer wants us to understand this storm isn't some coincidence. The boat just didn't happen to be out at sea when this big storm comes up. It says as the boat is headed to Tarshish, God goes after them. And God sends a a, a storm, huge waves, a wind. He's hurling this to stop the ship. And as the storm is unleashed, it tosses the ship around like a toy. Verse 5 tells us the sailors are terrified. It says, And the sailors became afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. You know, you've heard the saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. And, and here we see these seasoned sailors, as they, they fear that they're about to die, suddenly they get religious. It says they start praying. Now, as they're praying, notice they're calling on every pagan god they can think of. It has a little g there. It's not the Lord in all capitals yet. It's a little g. They're praying out to their pagan gods. But these false gods are powerless to help. So then what they start to do is they throw the cargo overboard. Now, that's very significant. Because the way that these sailors made their money is moving goods from point A to point B. And as they loaded the ship with the cargo, when they arrived at their port of destination, they would be paid for the cargo they delivered. When they throw the cargo overboard, they're throwing their money overboard. If the ship arrives empty, they're not getting paid for the voyage. Now, as they're throwing this cargo overboard, it's not just to lighten the ship so it would, it would ride higher on the water. As you read this in the original Hebrew text, there's a deeper meaning that you see because the Hebrew word that is used here is twill, the root of it. And it's the same verb that is used in verse 4 to describe God hurling the storm at the boat. Let me give you a little Hebrew grammar lesson here because it shows what is happening. As you take this word twill and you connect it with the preposition L, what it does is it tells you the focus or the intention behind the act of hurling rather than on the consequence. Now, what that simply means is this. They're offering the cargo as a sacrifice to the God of the sea. You see, they're not just throwing it overboard to try to lighten the ship. What they're saying is, we're going to pay off the pagan gods. We're going to give you a sacrifice to appease you in, in thinking that that would calm the storm. But we see their efforts were just as futile as their previous prayers because they're praying to the wrong God. Verse 4 told us who the God was causing the storm. It was Yahweh, the true God. When it comes to God, 1 Samuel 15, 22 tells us, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. You see, what God wanted here was not the sailor's stuff. He wanted the prodigal prophet that was on the boat. 
But Jonah's not yet ready to return. The second part of verse 5 says, But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship. He had lain down and he had fallen sound asleep. Friends, have you ever done something that kept you awake at night? Now, I'm not talking about when you eat that pepperoni pizza right before midnight. And you're kind of laying there going, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that. I've got indigestion. Have you ever done something where you're laying awake at night and you're tossing and turning because you're, you're, you're just thinking, you know, there's that situation I need to deal with. There's that person that I need to forgive. As we look at Jonah here, he's, he's asleep in the boat. There was a news report that came across the Associated Press uh, wire service. It was titled, A True Confession to the IRS. And it reported how the IRS had received a money order in an anonymous note that read, I've not been able to sleep well for two years. Here is my check for $1,200 in back taxes. And then the note ended, if I don't sleep better in a week, I'll send you another $1,200. (laughs) Now, it appeared this person's conscience was bothering them. They couldn't sleep, but it wasn't bothering them enough to really make things right quite yet, was it? They hadn't come completely clean. And as we look at Jonah here, we see his conscience isn't bothering him at all. The boat is about to break up. The sailors are all crying out to their gods. And where is Jonah? Jonah's asleep. He's not worrying about what happens to him or the sailors he's gotten into this mess. And that's something we need to draw from this passage as well. What we need to understand is when we sin... There are consequences, not just for us, but everybody else in the boat. Have you ever realized that? You know, when we sin, when we disobey God, when we're doing things we shouldn't, we bring consequences on others. You can just look at my life as an example. If I were to choose to go and do something that was, that was dumb, some sin that could be very significant, it could affect my wife, my kids, It could affect this church that I represent as a pastor. It could represent uh, a permission slip, so to speak, to some who would say, well, if the pastor can do it, I can do it. And our sin can have a consequence on others. We see that not just in the, the world of ministry. We see it in sports. If a coach cheats or some player breaks the rules, the whole team is hit with the consequences. It happens in a business situation. If an employee or uh, the owner of a business starts to compromise and cut corners and cheat, well, the customers are affected, and ultimately the brand is affected, and it loses uh, a customer base, and everybody suffers the consequences. Next time you think you can do something in isolation, I want you to remember Jonah and how his sin here is affecting the others who are in the boat with him. Now, in verse 6, we see the captain of the boat comes to Jonah, and he says, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Now, notice it's a little g here. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us, and we will not perish. Now, as the captain says this, Jonah must have thought he was having a nightmare. And the reason I say that is, remember, Jonah's down in the the belly of this ship, and it's rocking and swaying, it's dark, and he's there in a deep sleep, and suddenly he's roused. Have you ever been in that half-awake, half-asleep, and you kind of hear things, and you're thinking, am I dreaming? What am I hearing? And what he hears, what the Hebrew text says here, is the captain yells, kum kara, get up, 
Call on God. Now, these are the same words that we find in verse 2. There, when God originally called Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, he said, Kum lek karah. Arise, go and preach. And here is Jonah in the belly of a ship, far away running from God, and he hears the words, Kum karah. He thinks he can run from God, so God sends a pagan sea captain down into the bottom of the ship to repeat the call to Jonah. Arise, call out, preach. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever been running from God? You say, I'm going to close the Bible. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to skip church. I don't want to hear any more sermons. I'm going to stay away from those people who are going to tell me things that I know God wants me to hear. And what happens? You see it somewhere else, don't you? It's on a billboard, it's on a place, something shows up, and it reminds you. You think you can run from God, but God drops his message in in different ways and in different places. And Jonah, as he's confronted with this, he now has a choice. Will he respond to God and say, I've made a mess of things? I've been running, but you know, God, I'm, I'm ready to return. I'm ready to, to do what you want. How many of us here today are just like Jonah? Are you in a similar place right now because you've been running from God? You know what God wants you to do. He said something about a relationship you're in, about the way you're conducting business, about something going on in your life, and you've hardened your heart, you've turned your back on God, but God is calling out to you. And what God will do with us when we ignore it, you know, sometimes he whispers to us and other times he sends a storm. And as he sends a storm and we start sinking, as our life starts taking on water because of the bad decisions we've made, in those times what God wants us to do is say, I'm ready to do it your way, God, instead of mine. You know, Jonah is in the midst of the storm because he's trying to get away from God. And what God is doing is it said he's hurling a wind. He hurled the storm in order to get Jonah to repent, to stop, to turn around and come back to what God wants him to do. And as you look at your life today, are you like Jonah? Have you made a choice in the past to disobey God? If you have, what God wants you to do is to stop, to confess it. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says, if you will stop, if you will turn around, if you will come back to me, I will forgive you. I'll hit the reset button and you can start again. Friends, I serve a God who can calm the storm you are in. But he can also create a storm. And he can raise the waves and the wind and the other things to get our attention. If we continue to run from God, ask yourself right now if God is trying to shake you and rouse you out of a deep sleep of a disobedience or apathy maybe you've fallen into. Now, I'm not saying that every storm in your life is because of a direct disobedience that you're doing. But most of the things that we face in our life are because of bad choices that we or others have made with us and have caused us to face those storms. Now, at this point, God has Jonah's attention. He's awake. He's brought up on deck, and he finds the sailors are casting lots. Now, this isn't to pick their lotto numbers, friends. This is, this is because they're saying, we know there's somebody in the boat that has brought this on us, and we need to find out who it is. Verse 7 said, each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. 
Jonah draws the short straw. It shows he's the one that is guilty. Now, it's interesting. When it says the calamity here, the Hebrew word that is used is ra'ah. And as it talks about this calamity, it's the same word that was used earlier to describe the evil, the wickedness the Ninevites were guilty of. Jonah, who had been called to go to Nineveh and speak against the ra'ah, is now the cause of ra'ah, the evil, the calamity in the lives of these pagan sailors. Jonah 1.8 says, Then they said to him, Tell us, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? You see, what they're doing is they're peppering him with questions. Remember, they had this whole pantheon of pagan gods. And so what they're trying to figure out is, which god did you make mad, Jonah? Which one do we need to appease? Who is the god that we need to sacrifice to? Who is the god that we need to pray to? Who is it? Now Jonah says in verse 9, it's none of your false gods. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now the ship's crew would have had Phoenicians in it. These were a seagoing people, and they worshipped the pagan god Baal. And he had all kinds of little, there were little Baals all throughout that controlled different things. One was called Baal Shaman, and it meant the Lord of heaven. And Jonah says, I'm a Jew and I worship Yahweh Elohim. And he's not just the Lord of heaven. He's the Lord of the sea. Now, this would have blown their minds. Because, you see, they had so many gods and each god specialized in one little area. And what Jonah says is, my God made it all and he controls it all. He's over the heavens and the sea and the land and everything. Remember the psalmist said, where can we run from God that he's not there? He's as high or as low anywhere we go. And as they hear about this true God named Yahweh, verse 10 says, Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. When it says they were frightened, it wasn't that they were just in fear of losing their life. This is a word that has the idea of a reverence as well. And so what it is is they realize who the true God is. And they fear him and they worship him, is what it says. Now, this is kind of an interesting twist of the story, isn't it? Jonah, you'll remember, had been called to go to the pagan city of Nineveh to try to turn those pagan people to the true God. Jonah says, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to run the other way. So he gets on a boatload. He's in a boat with a boatload of pagan sailors who suddenly all become believers in the true God. You know, Isaiah 55, 11 tells us, my word which goes forth from my word will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You see, God's will will be done. The question is, will we be a part of it, receiving the blessings of obedience, or will we be disobedient? God will bring people to know him with or without us. The question is, will we be those who share in the blessing of it by doing what God wants? Now, in verse 11, is they, they say, okay, Yahweh, the true God, they say, we don't have any history with this God. We don't have the SOP, the standard operating procedure on how you worship this God. Can you, can you give us a little insight? So they say in verse 11, what should we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Jonah says in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. 
You see, Jonah says, it's me that God wants to just throw me overboard and he'll let the rest of you go. It's kind of a, a weird hostage situation, I know, but just throw me in and you guys will be free. Now, rather than save their own skin, look at what happens in verses 13 and 14. It says, however, the men rode desperately to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. And then they called on the Lord, and they said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, that, that do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. Do you notice how many times it says LORD in all capital letters? This is no longer this little God, but what they're saying is, We know who you are. We believe who you are. And as you look at what's happening here, compare it with Jonah. Do you remember what we've seen about Jonah so far? When it comes to the foreigners in Jonah's world, God said, go to Nineveh to these foreign pagan people. I want you to cry out and, and, and turn them to me. And what did Jonah do? He said, I'm, I don't care about them. I'm going to run from them. Let them perish. And when it came to the pagan sailors on the boat in verse 6, they said, get up and cry out to your God. Just pray for us. And in verse 6, Jonah was unwilling to even pray for them. But here we find the pagans suddenly are saying, we could save our own skin by throwing Jonah overboard. But instead, they try all their human efforts. They row as hard as they can. They are praying for Jonah to the Lord. Now, as they pray, as I said, we see that it's to the true God, Yahweh. They pray and they row, and yet it says the storm grows. All Jonah had to do was repent and say, okay, God, I got it. You're not going to let me get away. Every time they tried harder to get back, God made the storm even greater. Jonah could have just said, I give in, God. We're going back. Turn the boat around, guys. Take me home. And the wind would have been favorable in taking him back to port. Jonah said, just throw me overboard. You know, if Jonah knew that all he had to do was jump in the water to save the sailors, why didn't he just save them the guilt of taking his life and saying, I'm going to just jump in the water on my own? But he wouldn't do it. The sailors are exhausted. They've exhausted all their options. So they say, we have nothing left to do except what Jonah told us to do. It says, so they picked up Jonah. They threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Now, the same Hebrew word that is used for hurling that we saw twice before is again used here. It says they hurled Jonah, twill into the sea, and God quits hurling the wind. There's this poetic interchange happening in the text. And the scene here is similar to what we read in the New Testament. Do you remember the time the disciples were on the boat? And they were out in the Sea of Galilee, and there was this great storm, and Jesus is asleep in the boat, and the wind and the waves, and they were crying out in fear. They thought they were going to die, and they woke up Jesus, and they said, Lord, do you not care? We're dying. We're perishing. And Jesus stood up, and he said, be still. And it said the wind and the waves instantly were calmed. And do you remember the response of the disciples? It says they were in fear. And they said, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? This is God. And here are these pagan sailors who have said, we believe that you are the true God, suddenly have their faith reinforced and they say, he is the God who is in control of all things. And they worship him. Now verse 17 
we see he not only controls the wind and the waves, but he controls the things under the waves. Because it says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, if you were not here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to last Sunday's sermon. We don't have time to unpack it here. But there we talked about what was this great fish. The Gog, the Gadol Dag, remember that? The great fish. Some say it's a whale, others. We, we went through and tried to talk about what this great fish was. And we talked about what it meant when God appointed the fish. How God raised up this fish for submarine duty to pick up the prodigal prophet and take him back home. And here what we find is that Jonah, as he's thrown into the ocean, do you see the continuation of his downward descent of his sin? Remember, he went down to Joppa, he went down to the boat, he went down into the boat. Now he's thrown down into the water and he's sinking deep. And along comes this great fish and down the hatch Jonah goes. Do you see the continuation of his downward, downward spiral of sin? He's still got a hard heart. He hasn't said, God, I will do what you want. What he said is, throw me overboard, let me just die. I'd rather die than do what you want, God. But God in his great mercy doesn't give Jonah what he wants or deserves. He will preserve Jonah. And he'll let him sit, soak, and sour literally as he's stewing in the stomach of this great fish for three days. Until he finally says, okay God, my heart is melting. And we'll see next time when we come back and look at chapter 2 how he finally calls out to God in prayer. Friends, if you're here today and you're running from God, my prayer for you today is that you will run to God. If you're running from God, my prayer is that you will turn around and you will run to God. If you continue to run from God, you know what you will find is you will run into the storms that he will send to stop you and turn you around. God loves us too much to leave us like we are. God loves us too much to let us run from him in disobedience. He will come after us. He will pursue us with his great love. His is not a punitive uh, relationship with us where he takes joy in punishing us. God is a God who loves us. And he shows his great love for us in that he left heaven and he came to earth in order to go to the cross to pay the penalty of death for our sins. This is something we're going to remember today. We have a great picture of it as we come to the communion table. As we come to the communion table, what we see is God's great love for us. And that he was willing to pursue us. And he was willing to pay the penalty of death for us. When we sin, when we are disobedient, the scripture says that we owe a penalty of sin called death. And God showed his great love in that he was willing to come and take my place and yours. To go to the cross, to pay the penalty of death, to restore the broken relationship. He sent his son Jesus to be the payment for my sins and yours. That is his great love for us. Romans 5.8 tells us he demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're here today and you've been running from God, I want you to look at the cross. And I want you to realize his great love for you, how he spread his arms open wide. He didn't love us this much or this much. He said, I love you this much, and he died for us. He pursued us to that point. 
If you've been running from God, if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you today to say to God, God, I realize how much you love me. And I realize that running away from you is not only futile, but it's fatal. Because one day, if you do not turn to God, you will face the penalty of death for yourself, eternal separation from God. And he's calling on you today to stop running from him and to turn to him in repentance. To say, God, I am a sinner. And I recognize that you died for me. You paid the penalty in my place. And today, God, I'm turning around. And I'm coming home. I'm accepting you, Jesus, to be my Savior, to be the payment for my sins. If you've never done that in a moment when the men pass the elements, I invite you to take the bread representing the body of Christ and the cup representing his blood and to say to God, today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sins into you to be my Savior. I accept you as my payment. And for the rest of us who have received him in the past, if we've been running from him, we need to stop today as well. We need to say to God, God, I've been in sin. I've been running far from you, but today I'm turning around. I'm confessing my sins. I'm hitting the reset button. I'm restoring the relationship. I want you to think about your life, to take a moment in quiet prayer as you take the elements, talk to God in prayer, and confess any sins that you might need to. Men, will you serve us, please?
So we think about the story of Jonah and his descent as he kept going down, down, down into his sin. As you hold this piece of bread representing the body of Christ, it reminds us of God's great descent as well. As you read the book of Philippians, it tells us that God, while he was there in heaven, it says that he emptied himself. That Jesus Christ left his throne and he came to earth and he took on flesh and blood. The creator became one of the creation. Fully God and yet fully man. He took on flesh, which was something that humbled himself. We can't even imagine God becoming one of us. And this Christmas season, we celebrate how he became a baby born at Bethlehem. You talk about humility. The creator of the world needed somebody to change his clothes to feed him, to take care of him as a helpless baby. But the Bible tells us his descent went even further because not only did he become a man, but it says that he took the form of the lowest servant. That he lowered himself, you'll recall, even at the the Last Supper that we're celebrating now. It says that he took the form, uh, the place of the lowest slave as he girded himself with a towel and he washed the feet of the disciples because each of them thought they were too good to take that lowly place of a servant. And his descent went even further as he then allowed himself to be arrested and he went to the cross, dying the lowest death that a person could die, that of a criminal as he was crucified on a tree. He died to pay the penalty of death for our sins. But when God could go no lower, he was then exalted. Because after he was buried in the tomb and he descended even down to the spirits to preach to them that the penalty of death had been paid, it says, then he ascended. And he went to the right hand of God where he's seated today. And the scripture tells us there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved except Jesus Christ And it says that there is a day coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And so as you think of your life today, if you're one who's been running from God and you think of the the pit that you've gotten yourself into, like the prodigal son who could go no further when he was eating the, the pig's food, wanting to eat the pods that he was feeding to the pigs, and he said, I'm going to repent and I'm going to return home and tell my father that I'm not worthy to be your son, but I'm a servant now. And you'll recall that when he returned home, his father, representing God, said, my son has come home. And friends, if you're here today and you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, even though we've all descended as low as we thought we could go, God has exalted us and will one day exalt us all the way to his home in heaven. So as you hold this piece of bread, it reminds us of God's great love for us, that he pursued us to the pit. And one day we will be raised with him And we will be with him in heaven, the body of Christ seated in remembrance of him. The cup that we hold in our hand, again, reminds us of God's great love. His love that was willing to take my place and yours, to pay that penalty of death, to wash away my sins and yours. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that there can be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And the Son of God, who is the perfect and permanent sacrifice, shed his blood to wash away our sins, to remove them as far as the east is from the west. This represents the blood of Christ, drink it in remembrance of him.
Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. Love that was demonstrated in your willingness to leave your throne in heaven to come to earth. To go ultimately to the cross to pay the penalty of death that we all owed for our sins. We thank you, Lord God, for that love for us. Your love that you demonstrated even when we were like Jonah, far from you, running in rebellion, you came after us. And you, Christ, took our place. So, Lord God, today we want to say thank you. We want to thank you for your great gift of mercy and grace. And as we go into the world, as we come into this Christmas season where so many around us are focused on the material things of the world and all the stuff that society says is the meaning of Christmas, may we be willing to be messengers of the truth, to share the good news of the great gift that has come, that of your son, Jesus, and how you died to save us. So send us out now, Lord. May we be those who are faithful to spread the, the real message of Christmas. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.